hello there, how's it going? Uh, I think everything's working. Um, last time I did a uh, YouTube live with my uh, Mevo camera, halfway through uh, it all just stopped and it's, uh, my phone told me that uh, YouTube had uh, I'd maxed out on my live streaming uh, quota. Uh, I don't know why that happened. Maybe it's because we're in the apocalypse and everybody's live streaming. I hope that doesn't happen this time. Um, if it does, I'm recording this and so I'll just upload it straight after. But so far everything's working. I'm just seeing an advert for something come up. Um, I don't know why I have the adverts on. I mean, the amount of money I make <laughs> from YouTube advertising uh, wouldn't buy me a cup of coffee. So maybe I should just turn that off and it wouldn't annoy you. Um, hello, there's a few people saying hi. Uh, uh, let's see, so here's Ryan and Shams, Shamsi. Am I saying that right, Shamsi? How's it going? Um, uh, this is only, this is the second time that I've tried a YouTube live video that, that hasn't been private. Uh, I thought I did one two days ago, or was it yesterday, but it turned out that it was private, even though I thought it was public. This, I think, is actually public. Um, and uh, my hope is to kind of, if this works, is to do more of them, because what I'm interested in is, hopefully as people get used to me doing live videos, more people will click in and chat and ask questions and comment and add to what I'm doing. Um, and it feels like a, you know, I would, I would like to develop that type of community back and forth as much as possible. So we'll get started. Uh, did I say it right? You got it right. Very good. <laughs> um, so first of all, uh, I'll avoid any cliches where uh, it's, you know, we all know we're living in a crazy time. Uh, the only advice that I have for you uh, is Columbo. Uh, that's my quarantine uh, watching at the moment. If you've never watched Columbo or you uh, remember it from years ago when you were a kid, you can go back to it. It's all free on IMDb. And there's like, I think there's probably about 80 hours of Lieutenant Columbo. So that might help get you through the next bit of time. Uh, I know there's a lot of worry around economic stuff. And I really feel that for you. If, there, if you're struggling economically, I know lots of people who are potentially looking at not having work for a while. And so we're all going to have to pull together and, 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 you know, try and help each other in that. Uh, Another quarantine piece of advice is Hegel. I saw that on my uh, Instagram uh, account. Somebody was suggesting that you want to read Hegel because one, the phenomenology of spirit will take you months to read, to read through. They actually said two weeks. I don't know who, who, who can read the phenomenology of spirit in two weeks, uh, at least for the first time and understand it. So it'll take you a couple of months to get through it and uh, nobody will want to talk to you uh, whenever you try and talk about it. So it's a good quarantine. I recommend it. Uh, that's actually what I'm doing. Uh, so everything's still working. That's good. Okay, so what do I want to do today? Um, as some of you know, I'm currently doing Atheism for Lent. Atheism for Lent is a practice where a few thousand people all over the world get reflections every day of Lent. And they the reflections are from various critics of religion and critics of theism from without the, the from outside the theological tradition and from within the theological tradition and what I am doing in that course is very gradually we're exploring how theism and atheism are intertwined in interesting ways and at a deeper level how 
thesis and antithesis are interconnected in important ways. Positivity and negativity, how they are interconnected. Um, and every week I give a seminar. I won't go into too much detail about that, but this week I did a seminar that was looking at Feuerbach, Marx, Nietzsche, Freud, Goldman, and Joe Hill, right? Um, and I thought, oh yeah, maybe I'll just jump on and do a more public seminar talk, uh, looking primarily at Feuerbach and Marx and their critique of religion. Now, if you don't know my work, basically my main interest is, is I guess, creating collectives of the cure. And the collective of the cure are groups who are freed from the frenetic pursuit of certainty and satisfaction, right? This always this pursuit of finding something that will fill the lack, whether it's politically, economically, as a community or as individuals. And uh, my interest brings me into the area of philosophy and psychoanalysis and theology. But primarily, I'm interested in collectives of the cure because uh, I'm pretty convinced that it's very hard to find freedom from those frenetic pursuits and it's very hard to remain faithful to that freedom when we find it and learn how to be. You know, it's, it's, it's great to live in a society where you're free to pursue what will make you happy, but we also need spaces where we are freed from the pursuit of what will make us happy. We are free to be able to handle the full weight and freight of our emotional life and that this can help not only us as individuals, but as society. So that's, that's my work. And everything I do is to some extent related to that. I mean, there might be a few exceptions, but basically most of the courses and talks and uh, podcasts that I do are all related to exploring how we find that freedom. And part of that work is about how to embrace the contradictions and the deadlocks that are within us. Uh, the contradiction that is us, the contradictions that are in our lives and in reality, um, and, and find a way to make them work for us. Now, if that's your first time kind of hearing some of those ideas, they're not going to make sense, that's okay, but there's plenty of stuff out there you can find um, where I talk about those issues in more detail. But what I'm going to do today kind of feeds into that in some small way. So I kind of paint a picture of where I want to go. Uh, I'm going to be speaking more informally, but I think I know where I'm going, right? So uh, what I'm going to do is primarily uh, talk about Feuerbach and Marx. So at the end of this seminar, I'm hoping that you have a clear idea of their position, what they're arguing in terms of religion. And then I'm going to also offer the one place that I think there's legitimate critique. Um, and to do that, we're going to start with Hegel. We're going to do a little bit of Lacan. Then we're going to go into Feuerbach then into Marx, and then back to Hegel. And uh, two of the contemporary uh, thinkers who I'll probably mention at some point are Slavoj Žižek and Todd McGowan. Right, so that's the broad brushstroke. We're not going to do a lot of Hegel or Lacan, but we need to kind of, they, they'll help us set up understanding what Feuerbach is doing. And at any point, say hi, chat in the chat box, ask questions, because at the end, uh, if things haven't broken down, I will have a little look and see what people are saying. So why do I want to start with Hegel? Well, I mean, Hegel is key for understanding everything that is, is after Hegel, particularly Feuerbach and Marx and uh, kind of leftist critique. So Hegel is one of the most important philosophers um, in the tradition. And when he died, well, no, I'll, I'll get to that in a second, right? 
for, for this seminar, the important things to understand about Hegel are kind of something basic about his whole project. What Hegel is doing, and one of his most famous books, is The Phenomenology of Spirit. And he wrote that, I think, when he was 27, which is incredible. Uh, the book basically looks at how the universe gives birth to consciousness, how there is this kind of like gradual movement towards consciousness. And then how consciousness becomes self-consciousness and self-consciousness becomes reason and reason becomes spirit. Spirit manifests in religion until we get to absolute knowledge. There is this kind of trajectory. And the book itself kind of, it's all about how it's, uh, our consciousness develops very gradually over time and the development of ultimately say self-consciousness, which is where we are conscious of consciousness. So what Hegel is doing, he's, He's showing that, um, or he wants to explain what consciousness is and what uh, truth is. And he's, he's kind of given, a, he's uh, one of the last philosophers, he's trying to give a, an entire kind of system to help us understand the nature of thought, mind, and the nature of matter, reality. And what he's saying is that there is a type of not at oneness within the one. There is a type of antagonism within reality that um, plays out and as this antagonism plays out uh, more and more complex forms of life arise uh, and so with Hegel the progression of society and the progression of history and the progression of the universe itself is a type of if you think of a Darwin I mean Darwin's a good example of this Hegel is kind of like a philosophical uh, Darwinian in the sense of Darwin sees how conflict and antagonism generates change, transformation, increased complexity. And Hegel is doing this at an ontological level. I mean, at the very nature of, re of, of reality itself, there is a type of ongoing antagonism. And as this antagonism moves forward, uh, we um, in get to increasing, com increasing complexity. So life comes out of being, consciousness comes out of life, self-consciousness comes out of consciousness, reason comes out of self-consciousness, etc., etc. Um, now Hegel is basically saying, not every Hegelian agrees with this, but um, I say that the, this is <laughs> the best Hegelians, I think, uh, um, say this, uh, is Hegel is not seeing life as trying to eventually get to the point where we resolve this contradiction and this conflict in reality, eventually we get to the point where we see that it is not something contingent that we have to try to get rid of. It's actually something necessary that we have to grasp and uh, rule with and tarry with. Right. Uh, so the, 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 the cure, the absolute knowledge for Hegel is Think about it in very concrete terms. Uh, if you have, um, if the, in every given society there are problems that arise, maybe with climate, with uh, production, with whatever issues that arise in a society, and as we try to resolve these these problems, the deadlocks that are in our society, we may fantasize that we'll be able to create a society without problems, without deadlocks and contradictions. Um, but what happens is we actually deepen the contradictions. We, 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 uh, we end up 
kind of solving one set of problems, but we get to some sort of more intractable kind of problems. And Hegel kind of thinks that this is how things move. So it's not, it's not progressivism, it's not moving towards some sort of omega point of peace. It's, a, it's kind of a chaotic movement into more and more chaos until we realize that we are the chaos and we can accept it. Um, and a good example of this is something Shizek said uh, recently, or I heard him say recently, is uh, imagine, um, imagine if we overcome the contradictions of our present society, the alienation people feel in work, uh, underemployment, unemployment, uh, not being creatively involved in what you do for eight hours a day, uh, not having enough to be able to provide for your basic needs, whatever. Right? Imagine we live in a society where we get rid of all of that and everyone kind of uh, fully automated luxury communism, as they say, right? Everything's done by machines and we've got everything we need, right? Let's imagine that for a second. Um, that's not kind of like a dream scenario. In some respects, that, that opens up some terrible things, right? Because now, for example, you might, uh, might want to write a book, you, but you've always wanted to write a book and you can't write a book right now because you don't have time. But now you do have time, so you write it and it's terrible, right? And you have to realize, oh, I'm not a very good writer. Or, you know, you, you suddenly are kind of, you're able to achieve your dreams and then you discover to your horror that, um, you know, that uh, you're not as talented as you think, right? Or um, something that Todd McGowan said recently in, in the same vein is it's actually death is kind of less of a problem when you're not happy. Right? Whenever you're sick, for example, often death feels like a uh, respite. You kind of go, yeah, I would, I'd like to die. Right? Or if you're very, very old and you can't move and you're, you, know, you start thinking about death as being something positive. Um, death is horrible whenever things are going really well, uh, whenever your life is going great. Uh, you, you're, you're, you're out with friends, you're watching a movie. I think Todd McGowan says the example of when he's watching a really good movie, he thinks, I hope I don't die before I see the end of this because this is really great. So it's not that you do solve very important problems, but it's not that you get rid of every problem. You kind of get to more deep problems, more existential problems, and eventually the most existential problem, which is you know, the problem of, of death. And then you go, well, what if we overcome that? What if we get technology that allows us to basically live um, until the kind of entropy of the universe, right? So effectively to live forever, right? Well, that, that then just brings you to an even deeper problem, which is the death that is within life, right? So death is a type of nothingness that is at the end of your existence. But there's a type of nothingness that is within your existence and the names we give to that are guilt. Um, and uh, what's so guilt, Paul Tillich talks about, there's death um, and there is, um, oh, meaninglessness, a sense of lack of meaning. So guilt is a lack of living up to what you think you should live up to. Meaninglessness is a lack of, be of meaning. So there's these other forms of more intractable kind of nothingness that, that we would more fully confront. Um, but so what's the solution? God, oh my goodness, we're just hitting deeper and deeper contradictions. But there is a cure. And the cure is to rule with that and to see, to put it in a very tr trite way, is that the, 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 the joy and the depth of life is not getting to the end point without contradiction. That's a fantasy. The joy and the depth of life is found in the ongoing struggle of ruling with this kind of contradiction, of um, feeling it, expressing it, coming to know it and wrestling with it.
Okay, I kind of did a bit more than I wanted to on that. Hegel's always very difficult to, to, to pin down. But in a nutshell, that all I'm saying there is Hegel has this notion of ongoing antagonisms, which then generate uh, more complexity. And the other thing that, I, that we should know about Hegel before we move on is that whenever Hegel comes to the notion of, of how we become self-conscious, uh, which is in section two of the Phenomenology of Spirit, chapter four, he, um, is, uh, he talks about how we become conscious of ourselves and conscious of consciousness when we see ourselves through the eyes of another. In order to become conscious of yourself, you first have to externalize. You're looking out at something. So at first we just look at objects. So a snail who's kind of crawling around is just encountering objects, what Hegel might call sense certainty, right? You're just encountering objects. You're not, you're not, uh, you're not conscious of yourself. There's a very basic level of consciousness, which is just encountering objects in the world. And gradually, this moves forward and at the, the point at which we move from consciousness to self-consciousness for Hegel is the moment in which we start to see another and we see that the other sees us. So we see an object that sees us and so we begin to see ourselves as an object. Right? Now he has a very sophisticated argument to, to, to uh, kind of like uh, try to justify that. But that's basically the idea is in order for us to become conscious of ourselves, we first have to have some sort of external thing. We put ourselves out into the world and then we reclaim that we see ourselves as a self. Now, the reason why I want to mention Lacan very briefly is because Freud had a very similar notion in relation to subjectivity. And Lacan basically connected Freud and Hegel together. And Freud really understood that our understanding of ourselves comes from and is, is intimately connected with our experience of the external world. We become conscious of ourselves through others and through how others see us and interact with us, right? Um, and Lacan, in one of the early seminars, talks about the mirror phase. And the mirror phase is a, it's just a, it's the one area of Lacan that's actually quite clear. And some Lacanians don't like it. I think sometimes <laughs> they think it's too clear. But um, in a nutshell, uh, there's a certain age when we're very young, I think it's around three months to 18 months, right, where we begin to recognize ourselves in the mirror, in a reflection whether it's a, a window or a mirror or more often reflected in someone else. And I saw this the other day, I was looking out the window and there was a, 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 a woman and her kid were walking down the street and there were these windows and it was fascinating how the kid kept turning around to the window and seeing herself and pointing at herself. And then you'd see the mother turn around and, and point, right? So she was going, yeah, that's you, look, look at us, right? And it was interesting to see, she, the kid was very young and at that stage of fascination with the reflected image, right? Now, a lot of that is to do with even being reflected in your siblings. So you see your brother or your sister or your mother, your father, your grandmother, your grandfather, and someone tells you, you're just like them. Look, you're like your brother, you're like your sister, right? You're strong, you're beautiful, you're this, you're that, right? And what's happening is you're externally seeing another out there in the world. 
And then the primary caregiver, say your mother, is anchoring that back to you. They're saying, that's you. See all that stuff that you're looking at your brother and going, oh, you know, I would, like they're so great, idolizing your brother or whatever. And then your mother says, you're just like that. You know, you've, just, you've got the same personality or whatever. And then you start to anchor it back and you start to construct an, a, a, a sense of yourself. Right? So it's projection and return. And if the return doesn't happen, you end up in all sorts of trouble. Like you never, people idolize stars. It's often because they're putting their own ideals onto the other and they can't anchor them back into themselves. So they're impoverishing themselves by idolizing the other, right? There isn't that return, right? Um, so that's kind of basic mirror phase. So there's, there's Hegel, contradiction is central and what he calls modes of consciousness, which is different ways consciousness advances, gets to the point where we see ourselves in the other, we become conscious of ourselves through the other, and this helps us develop. Right, now then, that's a bit of the background into Feuerbach. We're still working here, that's good. I wonder if there's any questions at this point. I should maybe um, know we're good. Um, okay, so Feuerbach. Well, the reason for all of this is because Feuerbach is writing in the aftermath of Hegel and is one of what's called the young Hegelians. Now, it's important for later on in this seminar to just to mention that after Hegel died, there's kind of like two streams of Hegel, right? The thinkers of the day kind of took two broad trajectories after Hegel. One were called the right Hegelians and the other were called the left Hegelians or the young Hegelians, right? The right Hegelians were uh, more conservative and more theologically minded. They were more interested in what Hegel wrote about religion and the state. Uh, they uh, took, um, they had a more substantive notion, or thought Hegel had a more substantive notion about God and religion, and they kind of followed that. But the right Hegelians kind of died out. There wasn't much, there wasn't much interest in there. There wasn't, it wasn't a talented movement, didn't have much life, right? So that pretty much died off, went into theology a bit, but pretty much died off. Then there's the young Hegelians, and that's, that's where all these talented new philosophers come from. Even the ones who are rejecting kind of Hegel are kind of coming out of this tradition. And um, they are the ones who are more interested in Hegel's dialectical process, which is the process of contradiction. This process of constant antagonism and deadlock that kind of generates complexity and transformation. So they're really interested in that. And what they want to do is they want to apply that to politics. They want to apply it to economics. They want to apply it to the material world. So now we come to the materialists and uh, Feuerbach kind of opens this up. Now Feuerbach's main understanding of religion, because he's asking what, what any kind of theorist of religion has to ask is, is what is, what is the essence of religion? What is religion doing? Right? What is its point? What is its role? And there's some terrible <laughs> descriptions of what that is, right? There are a lot of very naive and, and shallow descriptions. But uh, Feuerbach, is part of the tradition. He's, he's answering this in a very sophisticated way. And he's the first really to give a uh, critique of Christianity and religion. Uh, so Christianity in particular, religion in general, that gives an alternative explanation for why it exists that, is, that doesn't require any kind of supernatural beliefs and that does justice to it. 
And Feuerbach is really interested in religion as it is practiced in people's lives. He's not interested in the small minority of mystics who are talking about a God beyond being and all of that. Feuerbach is going religion as it is practiced by millions of people, as you find it around the world, as it is done in community, uh, in its rituals, right? That's what he's interested in. And he wants to give an explanation for, for why religion is the way it is. And Feuerbach does not see himself as an enemy of religion at all. He's, he calls himself a friend to the theologians. In fact, he, in many ways, he is a theologian. He, he was an expert in Luther. Um, he was a better theologian than many of the theologians of his day, even though he was a philosopher. And um, he felt that he was actually revealing the, the truth of, of Christianity. And um, that is actually embedded in the Christian tradition itself. And that in a nutshell is similar to what Hegel's saying, right? This three-part structure. Feuerbach is saying that in order for humans to come to a type of communal self-consciousness, to understand what uh, the human essence is, to understand what humanity at our core is and can be, right? To do that, we first have to find that externally to us. And so Feuerbach, and you see this in another book of his, a small book, I think it's the uh, Principles of a Philosophy for the Future, where he, he gives an argument for why we would have a notion of God, right? That's not relevant for this, but we have this notion of God. But for Feuerbach, um, and it's to do with, by the way, protection and stability and uh, desire for stable love, et cetera, et cetera. But the... Um, we have, this, we have this kind of external God, and what we do is we project our essence onto that blank screen. And at first it's very primitive, and our, the gods are just like, I guess, us. There's lots of fights and jealousies and all of that. But very gradually that notion of God becomes purified and, and clarified until it gets to a very essential core of things like uh, justice and mercy and forgiveness and love and equality and um, uh, freedom and these kind of concepts become very very uh, honed in and very sophisticated which you see in scholastic philosophy um, but then but the problem with that is we are impoverishing ourselves because now we have our essence out there and that's the first step in realizing our own essence the next step is taking that back into ourselves and seeing that that is a reflection of who we are as a human species and what we can do, that we can bring justice and forgiveness and mercy and equality, that that is our work. So for Feuerbach, religion is essential, not for like all these kind of really silly kind of, um, you know, evolutionary psychology reasons, um, you know, uh, but actually because it, it has a, a, an ontological philosophical reason, which is, it's helping us to become self-conscious, conscious of our consciousness, help us as a, as a community to, to see what it is to be human and what we can achieve. So God is the kind of reified reflection of ourselves. But we have put all of our money into that bank. So we've impoverished ourselves. Now, says Feuerbach, it's time for us to go into the bank and cash the check and get the money back. Um, 
Now, again, Feuerbach is saying that this is not even against religion. He says, you can see this in Christianity. Like, my goodness, God becomes human and God dies on a cross. And then you have the collective of the Holy Ghost where people live together in love and there God is in the midst of them, right? Um, he says, this is the whole trajectory. And the, the whole trajectory of the New Testament is that, you know, we're, like, we are the body of Christ, right? You know, we eat communion, we are the body and the blood, right? Um, that is how we act in the world. So he thinks that this is just kind of like revealing what's already kind of there. And he, this is why he says that theology is anthropology. Theology is a kind of a way of speaking about the, the anthropos, the, the human, what we are. Okay, so that's Feuerbach. Um, what about Marx then? So Marx comes uh, after, after Feuerbach and basically, in a way, kind of accepts what Feuerbach is doing in a nutshell, right? Um, Feuerbach is, is taking an idea from Hegel and kind of making it very practical uh, in relation to a critique of, of God, but also really practical in the sense of like grinding it in how we act and interact with the world, saying that we now have to enter into a space where we see ourselves as the embodiment of the ideals that we put into the bank of God. Now, now for Marx, um, in his uh, essay, the introduction to the critique of Hegel's philosophy of right, where he talks about the opiate of the people, religion is the opiate, um, Marx broadly agrees, but with one important difference, right? So what is Marx's view? So the issue Marx has with Feuerbach, which is the same as what Max Stirner has, the problem he has as well with Feuerbach, is Marx says God is not a reflection of just the atemporal essence of what humanity is and is capable of, right? No, no. God is the reflection of our understanding of ourselves at the particular epoch we are in. Which means religion reflects in an idealized and sacralized form the political and economic ideology of the day. So you see not what humanity is in its atemporal essence, you see what humanity is in its current, what Marx calls, in its current mode of production, in its current epoch. And that's why Marx calls God a kind of encyclopedic entity of the day, right? An encyclopedic entity is an entry in the sense of you can, when you look at God, it's basically a great distilled definition of the ideals of the age that you're living in. And that's a very important difference because Marx's concern with someone like Feuerbach is that Feuerbach, uh, Basically, and this is a problem with the humanism that comes out of Feuerbach, this is why Marx is anti-humanist in a technical sense, um, and just like the existentialists are as well, is uh, Feuerbach um, is not an instrument for change. He just sees the way things currently are kind of as the way things are. It's, it's like he doesn't have a sense of the radical changes that happen throughout history. So it becomes inherently conserving. It can, becomes inherently kind of like not about transforming the world. It's, a, it's kind of like a, uh, there's, it lacks revolutionary potential, right? Because if you think what you currently see is the way just things are, when really it's just a reflection of the way things are now, then you're not likely to try to change it.
Now, this, this brief insight leads to, I'm going to mention maybe, I'll mention two things that come out of it that Marx talks about. He says, one is, religion then is consolation. This is very key for Marx. Marx is actually not an enemy of, of religion at all. He goes like, religion is consoling. In the critique, he says, uh, what is this? He says, religion is the heart of a heartless nation, the soul of a soulless condition, right? Um, it is, and he goes on to say, it's the opiate of the people, which is a painkiller, right? It allows you to cope with the horror of the day. Uh, it allows you to cope with the hassle of working and alienation and all of the struggles. But then he goes on to say, it's the imaginary flowers on the chains of our oppression. And he says, we must pick, we must get rid of the imaginary flowers so that we see our chains. Not so that we see our chains in despair, but so that we break the chains and can pick living flowers. So he says, we've got imaginary flowers and the chains of our oppression. We get rid of the imaginary flowers. Stage one is you see the chains of your oppression, but then you've got the opportunity to break them and then you can pick living flowers. And uh, uh, a quote I was talking about in the Atheism for Lent course is a, a little quote from Anna Freud. Where she says, in, in your dreams, you can cook the perfect egg. You just can't eat it, right? Um, and the imaginary flowers will always be nicer than real flowers. You just can't pick them and smell, right? Um, so there's a certain thing about Marx, and this is in Freud as well, that our, the consolation will always on paper look better, but uh, it doesn't actually change your material circumstances. And basically, Marx doesn't want to get rid of the imaginary flowers because he wants you to see he wants to depress you, right? So that you see the chains of your oppression. He wants to do it so that you can break free and have a better material life, right? And we can transform society. And it's similar to if you have an intervention with a friend who's drinking too much and you say, you've got to stop drinking. Or in therapy, this happens where there's sometimes talking to an analyst friend who says, there's a point when I'm dealing with alcoholics uh, when I have to ask them to stop drinking because we can't do any more work while they're taking the alcohol. While they're taking the alcohol, it's, it's, it's lowering their anxiety, it's helping them move away from the real problems that they're dealing with. But they have to sober up so that they feel that anxiety, so that they feel that fear. And then the, the analysis can continue and we can really make change. So you're not telling your friend to stop drinking because you just want them to see all the horror of their life that they're trying to escape by drinking. But you realize that they have to kind of see that and look at it so that then they can break those chains and pick living flowers or have the potential of picking living flowers. So consolation is important to Marx. And by the way, it's always a consolation of the current ideals of society. That's why the idea of like fulfilling your dreams is inherently conservative because to fulfill your dreams, you're simply trying to get to what you already idealize. Right? The point is not to fulfill your dreams, but to be able to dream new types of dream. Right? So when you're trying to fulfill your dreams, uh, if your dream is to be rich, well, once you get rich, you'll realize how rubbish that, that dream is, how, how utterly impotent it is to, to uh, do anything good, bar maybe get you a nicer shower and uh, maybe a more equitable temperature in your house, right? or a little bigger house. <laughs> but it's not gonna fix the existential woes. So the, the point for, for Marx is then you'll see that religion will say, well, it consoles you by, you know, it's okay, in the next life you'll get your mansion, 
right? In the next life, you'll get the financial rewards and all of that that you don't have here. So it consoles you both by saying, this is the way it is. This is just the way reality is, that pagan view of balance and order, everything in its place, right? Everything is as it should be. And in the next life, you will, you will get yours. But then this is the second thing Mark says is then uh, religion is inherently uh, non-revolutionary because it, it basically covers over the cracks of the contradictions and the problems and the alienations within the current epoch. It covers over them by making them eternal, by saying this is the way things are, um, or by making, making them contingent. I'm, I'm maybe saying more about that in a second. And therefore, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't change things. Now, of course, there are lots of exceptions, and Marx will be freely admit that, but as a whole, he's saying institutional religion will either, will basically um, be non-revolutionary for two reasons, right? One is the conservative reason. The conservative reason is this is just the way things are. You know, it's it can't really do very much, but in the next life, it'll be better. Or the progressive thing, which is, uh, things are, you know, bad at the moment because of bad actors and lack of representation and stuff like that, but we can fix those things. And as we fix those things, things will be better. Both of those are anti-revolutionary moves uh, because, and this is, this is now where we're going to get into a little bit of very basic Marxism. I know this has taken a while. You don't have to watch it all at one go. I think you can switch off and come back later because uh, we're... Where, you know, I, I kind of want to do justice to all of this. We've already been going for about 40 minutes. Okay, but what do I mean by this progressive approach being non-revolutionary? Uh, in order to understand that, let's just ver do a very basic kind of look at, at Marx's notion of what's called modes of production. So for, whenever I said Hegel has modes of consciousness, right? Consciousness goes through various modes of transformation which he is outlining in Phenomenology of Spirit. Marx is talking about various modes of production. That's what he's interested in. And modes of production are various uh, kind of shapes that the productive process takes over history. So production, a mode of production is simply how we labor, how we create goods and how we exchange them, right? So pull, pulling a potato out of the ground very Irish uh, uh, analogy, I know, but you're pulling a potato out of the ground and going and exchanging it for some milk, right? That is a mode of production. And labor is involved, even just picking out a potato from the ground is labor, right? Because I am, it's, it's a mix of nature and labor. So it's labor, right? Mode of production is just at various epochs, the way that we produce and exchange changes, not in small ways, but in qualitative ways, right? And those are the modes of production, these massive changes. And Marx outlines basically seven, right? Uh, the first two, I won't say anything about. The, one is tribal modes of production, and the other is Asiatic modes of production. Let's forget about those. We'll get into the ones that we do know. The slave, master-slave mode of production. Right. So master-slave mode of production, as you can imagine, it's some people in charge forcing through violence and threat of violence for others to produce and to create for them. Right. There's very little market, no kind of free market as we know. You Basically, the slaves work for the masters. The masters take what they want, give the slaves what's required for them to survive. That's that. Now, for Marx, 
of course there is a contradiction here there is an oppression it's a very obvious oppression and this creates all types of friction that begin to bubble and eventually erupt there's more slaves than masters there's a, there'll be resentments built up, there'll be laziness in the masters and the slaves will be plotting to be able to, to revolt and eventually the whole thing's going to fall apart, right? So the contradiction is bubbling, it's bubbling, it's bubbling, it's bubbling and it explodes. And if society doesn't fall apart, a new mode of production will arise. So what's that new mode of production? Well, that's feudalism. Feudalism um, is kind of a resolution of the previous contradictions, but there are now new contradictions, more intractable ones. So there's still lords and ladies, and there's still the peasants, so there's still a lot of inequality. You still have to produce for the people in power. Uh, maybe you have to give 10% of what you create to them and to the church and all of that, right? Um, and it's not it's not adhered to completely by force. Of course, it's done by force, but also ideology. There is religion is telling you that this is the way God wants it. In the in the new old hymn, all things bright and beautiful. There's that fruit, that line. Uh, was it the rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate? God made them high and lowly and ordered their estate. So there's kind of ideology. It's saying if you're in the castle or if you're at the gate, that's the way God ordained it. So that so the oppression is still there. It's it's there is still the violence of the master slave mode of production, but it's more hidden and it's more ideologically justified. But there is now a free market as well, because say you have to give ten or twenty percent to the Lord, you have eighty percent of the goods that you produce to bring to market to exchange for other goods, and money comes in, etc. etc. Now here's an important point. Um, you get the value of what you produce. You always get the value, um, not in reality, but in ideally. And th this is very, very key, right? Um, this is this will be key to why I'm one of the my critiques of progressivism. You'll see when I outline this is whenever Marx is talking about modes of production, he is never talking about modes of production insofar as they fail to live up to their ideals. He's always looking at them as if they are living up to their ideals, as if they're working perfectly within their own frame of law, within their own kind of like logic, right? Which me, and it's, if you want to understand this, Shizek said this, it's very insightful. Um, you know, Newton's laws of motion, right? We don't ever see them in everyday life, right? So the idea that a body remains in motion unless something acts upon it, right? So in other words, something just keeps going at the same speed indefinitely, forever and ever, unless something actually acts upon it. Well, we never in our lives see some, an object like that. It's an ideal, but uh, it is an ideal that we need. Those are the purified rules that allow us to explain everything that we do see, right? Um, so the ideals are vital to purify them so that we can understand the structure. So in the same way, Marx is not interested in the contingent problems within a mode of production or in the contingent uh, contradictions. He's interested in the necessary contradictions, the contradictions that remain and become visible when everything's working perfectly. And so with that said, when the feudal system, you go in 
with your two cows into the marketplace and you exchange those cows with other people. And in this, I, of course, in reality, there are bad actors. There are people who will deceive you. There's people who will steal from you. If it was all working perfectly, everybody is freely negotiating and getting the value, right? However, within the feudal system, there are deadlocks and contradictions, right? There is this oppression. And again, it bubbles up and it bubbles up and it bubbles up and eventually it explodes. And where does it explode? Well, it explodes into something uh, even more complex and even more intractable contradiction. This is where we hit the third mode of production. Well, the fifth, right? But the ones I mentioned, slave, feudal, and my capitalist, the capitalist mode of production. Now, in the capitalist mode of production, you have equality. And by equality, what it means is everybody is equal under the law. Whether you're a pre president or a peasant, you are equal under the law. Right? No one can coerce you to buy something or sell something. No one can force you to do it, technically. Uh, whether you're the richest person in the world or the poorest person, we are all under the law. And in terms of the free market, we are equal. Uh, that wasn't the case in feudalism, where the lords and the, 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 the ladies and the nobles were kind of exempt from the law, they were above the law. So in capitalism, at its ideal, because of course immediately you might go, well that's not how it works in reality, but forget that, we're talking about it working at its ideal. It's about we're all equal. So where is the contradiction within capitalism, right? Now, um, for Marx, capitalism introduces a new commodity, right? So there are commodities in every mode of production. A commodity is the potato that I pull out of the ground. A commodity in the master-slave dialectic is anything that the slaves produce, they're commodities. Um, I suppose they're commodities, I mean, you're not selling them. Uh, but yeah, uh, but even in feudalism, you're making commodities. Uh, I'm trying to think actually whether you could technically call a master-slave mode of production, you're making commodities because you're not selling them. But anyway, the point being, a commodity is something you can exchange uh, in, in the market. And I guess there is a commodity in a master-slave dialectic, right? Um, but for Marx, within capitalism, a new commodity enters the scene. There are proto-versions of it, of course, but it really comes into the scene. It matures in capitalism. And unlike every other commodity, because every commodity in feudalism gets what it's worth, right? That's it gets its value. In, in capitalism, there's one commodity that never gets what it's worth whenever the system is working well. And that is the magical commodity of labor power, right? You sell your labor, right? So when you go into the marketplace, most people don't have anything to sell in the market except for their labor. That's what they've got. That's, that's the product that they go into the, the market to sell. And the funny thing about that is if I give you $50 a day for your labor, it's because that is worth $100 a day to me, right? So maybe I get $100 a day, I give $50 to you, I give $25 to the upkeep of the factory, and then $25 goes to me and the shareholders, right? So it's not a weakness in the system that means you never get your value. It's actually if the whole system's working perfectly, you don't get your value. In fact, if the system's not working well, you might get your full value because you're, you're not making surplus value. Now, the, the reason why I'm, I'm drawing this out is because with, in contemporary liberal politics, 
often what you see happening is the idea that the system is not working to its ideals, right? We need, there are bad actors or there is lack of representation. There's, and if we can sort these things out, then the system will work well. That from Marx's perspective is just kind of like a, the idealization of the current mode of production as if it is just the real, as if it just happens to be. And you see this a lot within um, uh, some justifications of capitalism where people will say it's not a mode of production, it's the end of history. Well, it's, it's just the way it is, it's just a reflection of human nature. It is a reflection completely of reality itself, right? Um, and that's fascinating because if anything, it's not, right? Like there's not very many animals who build one shelter and then want to put an extension on their shelter or have two shelters and, you know, and have three and, uh, or kind of eat and then want to eat more and more and more beyond what they want to eat. And, uh, or kind of like, you know, there's the, the kind of things that we see uh, in terms of the, the abstract increase of capital, if anything, you could say it's very unnatural, so it's, but that's beside the point. But the argument is, you start to see, oh right, a lot of political discourse is simply about saying that the system is failing to live up to its ideals. Not that the system in its ideals is has some sort of inherent alienation embedded within it. And in fact, and here's the even darker bit, is within, for Marx, uh, it's precisely the inability, well, this is more, you know, someone like Shizek would say, it's precisely the inability to get to the ideal that allows you to still fantasize that the ideal would be great, right? By not getting there, you can fantasize that if we did get there, we got rid of bad actors and we had representation, et cetera, et cetera, then everything would work great. Whereas for Marx, all, would, all that would happen is that the contradictions within the mode of production would then become very obvious. Now, there's always two things we do with that. One is we reduce contradiction to opposition, which means that we find some enemy that we can blame for why things aren't working and say, if only they didn't exist, then everything would be great. Whether that's immigrants, Republicans, or Jews, or the Irish, or whoever, whoever the people you don't like are. If only we got rid of them, then everything would be great. That's reducing contradiction to opposition. And that's the very nature of scapegoating, the scapegoating mechanism. Um, or you face the contradiction, you bring it to breaking point, and you work with it and tarry with it to bring you to a higher mode of production. And, um, uh, you know, so that, that will be then, you know, for Marx, of course, and after capitalism is socialism, after socialism is communism. But uh, there's, you don't need to use those terms. And there's also, I want to do a slight critique at the end of, of, of something that Marx was, saying, was doing with the idea of communism. So where are we now? My goodness, we've, we've traveled quite far, right? Um, we've done the modes of production, the contradiction that's arising. Oh yeah, so for Marx, the idea is not to, to get capitalism to work to its best, but it's to expose the contradictions that exist that are quite hidden. They're more hidden in capitalism than they were in feudalism, which were more hidden than they were in kind of the slave mode of production to reveal those contradictions because this surplus value that's created by the worker causes all sorts of deadlocks, right? That's, it, that's what causes boom and bust. That's what causes disparity between the amount of money in the market and the amount of goods in the market. That's what causes problems with money get going to a small group of people out of the hands of the many and all of the, So you could, in a way, all of the issues 
the problems with capitalism for Marx kind of come out of understanding this surplus value. Surplus value and a thing called labour theory of value, which I'll do a separate talk on at some point because it's it's important too but this everything surplus value can help us explain why we encounter all sorts of problems in the current situation now then okay so that's marx and that's why marx thinks that religion cannot transform because it simply makes capitalism if it's in a capitalist side if it's in feudalism makes feudalism kind of the essence of humanity it makes capitalism the essence of humanity makes it sacred and consoles us right okay now then i want to i'll try and start to conclude where do i think this goes wrong i don't think it goes wrong in all of the you know usual ways that you might hear the usual objections i think there's one objection that um is is really insightful and right. And uh, uh, Todd McGowan, uh, who's a writer, I think is phenomenal. He wrote a book recently called Emancipation After Hegel. And in that book, I think he puts his finger on the problem with this, with this view. Because remember at the beginning, I talked about the young Hegelians and the right Hegelians, right? The right Hegelians are the more conservative. They, they look at religion and the state. Uh, in Hegel, and then the young Hegelians are the ones who go with this political critique. Well, McGowan says that the problem is, for Hegel, these two things are completely interlinked, right? And Hegel's notion of Christianity was exactly the idea that Christianity is not trying to overcome the contradiction or trying to, to, to kind of make sacred the current mode of consciousness of the current state of affairs that actually christianity is the name for this for the encounter with this dialectic process of encountering deeper and deeper contradiction now just to put it in very personal terms for a second if you're doing psychoanalysis you go there because you have contradictions in your life you maybe love your partner and you hate them right you love your kids and you want to run away from them right you you um uh, you want to care for your parents and you wish they were dead, right? All of these contradictions. Now, you're generally not aware of one of them. <laughs> you're generally aware of the one of love and you're, you generally repress the one of hate, right? But so you've, you've got all these contradictions and they come out in symptoms, right? And those symptoms might be bad backs, heart stuff, or um, you know, allergic reactions, whatever it is. Now, when you go into therapy, you're trying to get rid of the contradictions. You're trying to, to eventually get to a point where you're beyond all of these contradictions that inhabit you. But in proper psychoanalysis, you, you go through the contradictions and you go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. So for example, you might go, I'm clenching my jaw, it's really sore, and, uh, and the doctors don't think there's anything wrong, I have to wear this gum guard. And you eventually start to analyze it and you go, I think you're really angry because you have to take care of your elderly parents but you also despise them for it. You wish you didn't have to do it. So you want to shout at them, but you also want to keep your mouth shut. And so it's coming out in this symptom. Oh. And as you analyze that, you go, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. But then that gives way to a deeper contradiction where you go, well, you know, interestingly, this connects with um, your relationship with your, your siblings, right? And whenever you were younger and you get into that and you go, yeah, actually, my goodness, uh, you know, I always felt that I was the one who had to look after everybody and um, I really resented that, it really annoyed me. And you go, like, oh, I'm repeating something from my youth. 
And then you can go even deeper and go right back to your childhood and go, oh yeah, my goodness, I always felt that my parents were arguing and I had to be the peacemaker. I felt that I was the one who held them together. Right? And so what, what you begin to see is these contradictions are not being resolved or they're being resolved by simply going deeper. And the weird thing is without noticing it is as you go deeper into the contradiction, the original symptoms begin to diminish. Not because you're overcoming the contradiction, but because you're seeing it, you're bringing it to light and you're going deeper into it. And then eventually the cure is when you're able to make a space for that contradiction in your life and kind of go, yeah, I have to, um, I have to make that compromise of loving my parents and wanting to look after them and also being frustrated and angry about that and, and all of the stuff about my past. And, and then ultimately, you know, that reality itself um, has these compromises built into it. And then you, you can be free, then the cure and you leave and you're, you know, better, right? So this, this is the kind of idea, but that's the Freudian notion. But um, why was I saying this? Oh yeah, so for Hegel, this process is captured in Christianity itself, where there's always this struggle between you and the absolute. And you're always trying to, um, kind of close the gap between you and the absolute or protect yourself from the desire of the absolute, which is what covenants are, protecting you from God destroying the world or whatever you make a contract, right? So there's all of these contradictions that are playing themselves out until eventually uh, in Christianity, you have the idea of the absolute experiencing a contradiction within itself. So my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The notion of the cross where God is not at one with God. And so you realize that contradiction is at the very heart of reality and can't be overcome. And as you symbolically identify with Christ, the one who experiences the internal contradiction, you come to accept that internal contradiction within yourself. And then you're able to find the cure, what's called salvation, right? You're freed from the frenetic pursuit of a non-contradictory life, which leads to scapegoating, oppositional thinking, desire to kill enemies. Right, in a nutshell. Um, and, and so for someone like Todd McGowan, is that the very thing that the young Hegelians missed was that Hegel was actually outlining an understanding of Christianity that is precisely this revolutionary type of movement. And in fact, it's more revolutionary than what you find in the leftists. For one reason, and this is controversial, but is that Marx himself seemed to postulate the end of contradiction in communism. I didn't talk too much about it because for Marx you can't really know the future, you can just bring up the contradiction in the present. That's why he's an apocalypticist, not a progressivist, right? Progressives know the future and know where it's all going and you just have to get there. An apocalypticist says that we don't know what the next mode of production looks like, you just bring up the contradictions in this mode of production, you make them visible, you make them seen, and that will give way to the next. Um, and that connects you with you know, accelerationism, people who want to accelerate the perfection of capitalism so as to overcome it. Um, but sometimes in Marx, you get the sense that the, the, the contradiction is overcome. Uh, what does it look like to say that the contradiction can't be overcome, but the, the, the end of history is when the contradiction becomes uh, something that we can embrace? And I think in, in politics, we call that democracy. Democracy, you can see, and it's always under threat, but democracy is where all of these different competing interests 
kind of come together in a way and that doesn't destroy society and can actually sometimes move it forward. So democracy isn't overcoming the contradictions of different beliefs and different opinions and different interests. It somehow takes all of those and is able to make them productive, right? So the other alternative is people want to get rid of competing beliefs and ideas um, and therefore have everything like in the matrix reflecting themselves, right? Destroying any otherness which you can't do because if you remember Hegel, you only know yourself through another. So, um, so it's an impossible task anyway. Like if you completed it, it would just end in your destruction. Um, so all of that to say, what we have covered here is hopefully Feuerbach's understanding of religion and Christianity in particular as a way of us understanding the human essence and bringing that back into ourselves and understanding ourselves, then Marx is saying, no, it's not a description of our human essence. There is no human essence. Here he's sort would agree with them, even though Marxism and existentialism don't sit well together, they agree here. This kind of thing is, there is no human essence, right? There is just what we are in the current mode of production. And it's a snapshot. Like, uh, Religion is like a, sh a, a, a picture being taken of the moment and then you put Vaseline on it or whatever, you put filters on it to make it look like, like magical, right? Basically, religion is the Instagram of our lives, right? It's the idealized reflection of our lives, not of what we should be, but just what we, our current ideology. And therefore, it gives us consolation, but it doesn't offer transformation. And then... That, by the way, I think covers confessional conservative Christianity and liberal Christianity and covers humanism. And then the way, the one weakness of all of this, I think you see by going back to Hegel and going, okay, um, actually there is a way of understanding religion and Christianity as precisely an embrace of this contradiction and a going deeper into it. And that is the work of parotheology. And there's two technologies designed to do that. It's called transformance art and decentering practices. They're designed to bring you into that, into that experience. All right, are there any questions? Uh, oh yeah, by the way, you could, you could call, instead of, you know, Mark says, the, that's why he calls the religion the opiate of the people, because it's a painkiller, but today you could call it the, um, uh, I called it the yoga of uh, the people, but, um, I quite like yoga, I think it's good, but this is how sometimes people use yoga. And then to throw myself under the bus, it could be looking at these seminars as your way of being pain relief. We can use anything for pain relief. Um, but yeah, so let's see, questions, questions. Um, okay, Tyler's saying, would you ever cover Chesterton? I'd love you to hear a thought. Oh yeah, I'd love to. Chesterton's a fascinating uh, guy. So yes, um, I'd need to reread him. It's been a long time since I've read him, but. He is just such a phenomenal writer, and he is a master of the dialectic. Um, you know, he's Shizak's favorite theologian. Um, yeah, let's see. Some people just asking me about my travel. Um, uh, Jürgen, hey Jürgen, he says, an old academic issue on theory asks, um, uh, oh, the Che uh, Bono, what's that? That's the good, something the good. I'm terrible at my Latin. Um, I just know Bono because it's good, <laughs> because, of, because I like Bono. Um, that's very urgent in theology. What is the good? I guess that's what it means. Uh, in biblical texts, we encounter the beliefs of the poor, not about the poor. So it's all about relief from poverty. Um, I think you're just making a comment more than a question there, so I'll keep going. But if you're making a question, do write it in and then I'll 
I'll answer it. Um, oh yeah, sorry, you had to split your thing into two. That's the problem with the chat box. You can't you can't uh, say very much. Uh, let's go. I'm sorry for the pause, but I'm just reading your questions. Chaz says, if Marx critiques Feuerbach because of his lack of revolutionary potential, and Marx's communism is a flight from contradiction, which ultimately means it's not Hegelian enough, then do we need today a better articulated Hegelian Christianity that reconciles us to contradiction so that material conditions can improve, or is that also a flight from contradiction? Jazz, that's very well said. That's very well said. That's what I. That's what I believe. That's what I argue. Um, it's kind of like the, the kind of crux of my entire work and what I've been doing for the last twenty five years. Not that I could have articulated it in that way, you know, in the first ten years of it. But there was a sense in which um, uh, the Hegelian Christianity, that ra radical Christianity, was what I. Uh, so I think kind of like part of the the answer. And so you, you said it very beautifully there. The only thing you said at the end, which is, or is this also a fight from contradiction? I mean, and that's, a, you know, that's an important thing to bear in mind is anything can be a flight from contradiction. Even um, exploring contradiction can be you know, a way for you to intellectualize things so that you don't undergo it. That's why, that's why the majority of my work for the first, first 20 years was practical it was in community and that's why even at the beginning of the seminar i talked about collectives of the cure because this is not an in this, this is an intellectual thing i did today because i enjoy that and you know that's what i can do on on youtube i can't do the communal side of it here but but yeah this is just this is that this is just um uh, a little bit of a pastime this is just kind of fun i think it has importance for people who want to learn how to to do this work in the world right but the real action is when we undergo this experience of contradiction, when we feel it and are transformed by it. And that's why I believe in liturgy. And by liturgy, I just mean rituals that, that help draw out contradiction. So my work is basically trying to put Hegelian Christianity into liturgical form, in a nutshell. Oh yes, and you went on to say, does this revolutionary change better happen in the institutional church or outside? Oh, that's the old, the age old question. So my old patron, um, uh, who we would talk about this a lot, was somebody who supported me for a few years to get me on my feet. And um, the question we often talked about is like, do we try to, do I try to set up new communities or do I try to work within the institution or is it a mix of both? And, uh, um, maybe I should do a whole thing on that because uh, yeah we have to unpick that uh, is whether you know the old line uh, new wine and old wineskins kind of doesn't work whether this is primarily going to happen outside of the institution and um, I tend to think perhaps but uh, so I need to find people who are interested in this work who've been following my work for a while and who want to either transform their communities or set up new communities um, so yeah that's a this difficult question I think primarily but um, well, you think about how Protestantism came out of Catholicism. I mean, Luther wanted to stay within the Catholic Church. He couldn't do the transformation within it. He eventually did it outside, and then that transformed the Catholic Church as well, Second Vatican, etc., etc. So that's often how I see change happening. So it's, it's kind of, it's again, it's a dialectic process. It kind of happens, comes from within, creates something from without, and that then retroactively creates what it left. 
behind. So that that's probably that's probably how I think reformations occur. That 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 kind of dialectical way. Uh, Hamilton says, I think Marx makes a fatal misreading of Hegel. This has been pointed out uh, in particular by uh, Pinkert, yeah, uh, but more on that later. What a great lecture. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Although, funnily enough, Pinkard is, um, uh, there, there's kind of Hegelians who are more uh, into the idea of, of Hegel and recognition, and then there are, there are Hegelians who are more into this notion of Hegel and the contradiction. And so I don't know if you've uh, read um, much McGowan, but I think McGowan's doing something really, really interesting, which is probably a little bit um, kind of like critical of uh, some of the stuff that Pinkert's doing. Um, but, but basically, I think you're right, is that, that, the, mis that the mistake, here's, here's what, uh, here's what McGowan says, which is an extreme and brilliant way of saying it. <laughs> um, he thinks that but when you get rid of this notion of contradiction, then you, in the left, there is this notion of oneness, completeness, uh, oceanic kind of like a kind of return to the one. But it's not a return, which is conservatism, it's eschatological, the one lies in the future, but it still has the notion of a a one, a non-contradictory existence. So conservatives look back, uh, obviously, the archy and the and liberals look forward to the eschatological hope, but they're both caught up in the one. And so McGowan says, this is one way of understanding the horrors of com communism in the 20th century is exactly this problem. This misreading of Hegel is what led to Stalin. Now, of course, the misreading of Hegel didn't directly lead to Stalin and lots of historical factors, but there's something about that misreading that allowed intellectually, um, I think, a, a, a problem to arise. So again, recommending that book again. Um, oh yes, somebody said it just disappeared there. Uh, Neuroman said we're contradiction phobic. That's, that's true, yeah. We're afraid of the contradiction. Um, oh, there's loads of things happening here. Sarah, hey Sarah, she's asking, how do we develop these critiques that Marx was doing of economic systems into religious practices and systems? Yeah, okay, I'm going to give an easy answer to that, which is, it's what we're doing, right? And I, I know you, I can say that, you know, this whole thing of parotheology at its core is, is the attempt to do that. So there are some lectures out there for others, you've, I think you've seen them and you would know them, but for others, I'm sure there are lectures out there where I talk about it and I call it transformance art and decentering practices, the technology of power of theology. So if you want to look online, I'm sure you'll find some of those lectures somewhere. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of what I'm trying to do in my work. So the, the work of Icon, which is in, I think every book that I've written, I've tried to put at least a section of, of, of how this looks in practice. So, yeah. Uh, so this is a big question. I don't even know if I'll be able to say anything about it, but I'll have to read it because it's good. So is the, is the present pandemic decentering toward society? Um, so I'm not sure exactly what you're meaning by that, but I'll kind of like say something that's it's inspired and hopefully it connects in some way. Um, the thing is, the worry I had about contemporary society in America was that the social fabric was under threat of breaking entirely. Um, that we were in a place where um, 
basically tribal differences, political differences, um, cultural differences, religious differences were so dividing us that democracy itself was under threat, that we were in a very dangerous place. Now, interestingly, a friend of mine is a, he's a psychoanalyst and he does group psychoanalysis. He was talking to me a while back about how whenever he's working with a group of people and it's under threat of falling apart, one of the ways in which you get the group to remain together is by becoming the willing scapegoat. So you become basically the analyst becomes the one who everybody hates, right? So you take on all of the hatred that's floating around and the anxiety, you take it on to yourself and that allows enough space and enough time, especially if the analyst is doing the job, right? To be able to kind of reflect that back and kind of re, kind of remake the social bond enough so that attack and conflict can continue. And it's the same within uh, couples therapy. Sometimes the analyst has to become the scapegoat, unifying the couple through a shared hatred of the, of the therapist. And that's very useful. Just long enough for the two to find something that unifies them to begin to pick things apart and work things through. Even if that means splitting up, they can split up in a better way because they're not, you know, they're not at war. And so this idea of the willing scapegoat, of course, there's all these connotations with Christianity there um, or the symbolism of Christianity. Um, so what's interesting about the, about the, the COVID um, situation is that the only opportunity that I think that is possible, it's, you know, there's always threats and opportunities in times of chaos. And I just wonder whether this might help to, to, re, to rebuild social fabric, both within the US and also between countries. Um, so weirdly, we're talking a lot about social distancing, um, but like my secret hope is that actually the opposite is happening. Um, I've even seen this with a couple of people. There's somebody who I know who their family's very religious and they went away from that and they have minimal contact. And this is kind of remanded re enough of the social fabric between them to be able to hopefully when this passes, be able to work through their differences. So that's not me saying at all that this is good, it's not good. Um, I'm just going like that. I wonder if I'm hoping that there's something about this that actually, so it's kind of almost the opposite of decentering. I kind of feel like, like the problem is in analysis, if someone's anxiety is too high, you can't do anything, they're freaked out. And if their anxiety is too low, you can't do anything. So you can't analyze someone who's just fallen in love, right? They're, just, they're happy. <laughs> um, you kind of have to get that midpoint and and then and then changes can happen and i almost felt that we were so here so every, the anxiety and the tensions were so ratcheted up um that uh the things just i genuinely was like a little bit concerned that that uh you know certain good things about society were going to collapse and maybe this will mend social fabric enough so that there can be enough it's almost like there has to be enough destabilization that's what i'm saying like the middle point enough destabilizing for the movement to go forward too much and too little or bad maybe that's me not being revolutionary enough because some people think that it's only accelerationists will say you have to bring it to this right you want so and i've seen this with some people on twitter some kind of Twitter uh, revolutionaries, um, they, they're, they're kind of accelerationists there. You can, you can tell in their tweets and in their little comment pieces that they're, they're hoping that this comes, you know, brings everything to its knees. Um, I can understand where that comes from, but 
I think that it's all about the right amount of destabilizing. That's why analysts talk about having and being a non-anxious presence. So you create an environment that is safe so that you can be unsafe. Create an environment where you can feel protected. You feel like, and you go there once a week, the analyst isn't gonna kick you out no matter how nasty you are to them. Um, it's, it's, it's there until you don't need it anymore. And because you've got that safety, it can then be a very unsafe and destabilizing space. So that goes against what I'm saying because we're not, we don't have that safety in many ways. This is damaging to us all. Um, but I guess when I read your question, it just the first thing that came to mind was um, that there's too much destabilizing going on, but, but maybe, maybe this will help to mend some of the social fabric. And then at the, and once this passes, and I hope it passes very soon, um, we can have more productive conflict again within politics. I don't know if that makes sense. That could have been rubbish. If it was, forgive me. Um, let's see. Okay, we will stop there. Um, I hope this was okay. And um, if it worked, uh, I'll look at doing kind of more of these YouTube lives. And um, uh, I'll talk to you all again soon. Take care. Bye-bye.